If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hello, everyone. Welcome to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Shiloh, and I'm here with Dr. Scott. Welcome back, everybody. How are you doing, Dr. Scott? I'm doing pretty good. I've still got that tail end of that stupid head cold that my supervisor, Dee Dee, gave me. Dee Dee, I swear to God. Jeez. Just call her I, out. Why don't I know. you? I just can't get over it. Like, Dee Dee. I love Dee Dee. I love her too. But, like, next time she walks in with a head cold, we're all going to throw our little stress balls at her and force her out of the office, I think. <laughs> Things could be worse. Oh, they could be. Oh, they could be so much worse. We had a great weekend, didn't we? I know. We're just coming off of Lit Fest Pasadena past Sunday. That was really cool. It was so much fun. I felt when we first got there, we were waiting for you to show up. Dan and I were sitting um, in the courtyard of a, a Pasadena Playhouse, and one of the poetry seminars was going on, and. On one hand, the stuff that I was hearing, you know, there's just meta narrative going on. You're hearing these poets perform their materials and they're really good stuff but it was a it was a bit hipsterish like there was the whole vintage typewriter set up across the street and i oh the whole thing was hipsterish yeah and yeah. I, I was wondering if i should be like you know instead of clapping we should all snap our fingers like that episode of happy right. days <laughs> you cannot stand poetry i had to really yeah i went to i just a... don't like it performed i like to read it yeah i guess that's what i mean but I went to a book signing of my brother's once and they had some poets there and it was just so hokey. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, As a teenage I, girl, I love to read it. but Right. I think maybe, I don't know. I just, I try and think, I wonder if it's like, maybe it's like a, I don't have a palette for it. That's, you know, yeah. maybe I, I need to develop an appreciation for that. Maybe I need to develop an appreciation for something other than horrific, horrific crimes. Whatever you want to exactly. do. Um, but yeah, we were on a, a panel with some really cool people. Um, so it was a panel completely made up of true crime podcasters and authors. And Frank Gerardo, who wrote Burned um, about the arsonist firefighter that we did our season opener on. Yeah. Um, he was moderating the panel. And then Lori Orr, who was the daughter of that firefighter who co-wrote the book with him, was also on the panel. And Lori has become a really successful writer of her own accord. I mean, this is sort of an enormous traumatic right turn that her life took when suddenly as a, almost as an, an adult, I mean, she was yeah, already in a, like sure. an adult when she, you know, found out that her dad was this serial arsonist that had 
you know, just left a swath of destruction all the way up and down the California. Yeah. Uh, did you I get five. to interact with her? I did. I got to, I, it was, uh, really need to talk with her. And I, I wanted to, you know, she's very, uh, she's very quiet, um, mm-hmm. and reserved. And when she spoke, you know, you could tell she was really, really thought well, well thought out about what she, how she was answering, which is totally unlike me. Cause I'm just start. Yeah. I'm just going to start talking, <laughs> but I found her to be really fascinating. And also just having my own, uh, family experience of, uh, interaction with the legal system. I wanted to touch base with her and, you know, kind of reach out to her and we were having this conversation. Oh, the, Oh, I know what I was going to tell you. Cause remember that whole interaction I had with Karen Kilgareff yeah. at the other lit, lit, award, gala, lit yeah. gala. Okay. Where I totally completely embarrassed myself. Well, I, I somehow managed to do that again because I'm sitting there with Lori who is gracious as hell. She's just gracious. So there's this really tall looking guy that looks like sort of straight out of central casting that you would look like somebody that's on the front lines. Like he's got like a little flip notebook or something. He's taking notes and Lori and I are talking and he makes eye contact with me. And I think, Oh, well he wants to talk to me. So I go to very politely to Lori, I go, excuse me for one second. Hey, I'm Scott. And I reach my hand out and he goes, uh, I'm waiting to talk to her. <laughs> and then yes. he like, he's from like time or newsweek. Oh and he's like a God. huge journalist. I didn't get his name or anything, but of course I was like, uh, uh, Oh, of well, course you of, are. Of course you are. <laughs> but I, is. you know, walked to walked away in chagrin, like a complete no doofus. Wait, I missed all of that. That's just my life is just one string of doofus moments after another. Um, Steve Hodel was on the panel. That was kind of amazing Wasn't to be that sitting. A surreal? Yeah, it really was to be sitting next to this guy that's a part of L.A. noir true crime history, yeah. and and some of the things that he shared with us that will I don't he he gave us a couple of tidbits that we'll probably share for a, an episode where we have him on. Yeah, or, I would love to because even and I, what I didn't realize, which was very helpful in listening to the podcast, um, root of evil. For those of you who haven't listened to root of evil, root of evil is a wonderful podcast about the Hodel family. And, you know, it's, it's also there, the, the theory, the current theory that the killer is George Hodel, who is Steve Hodel's dad, which we talked about in our Frank Lloyd, right? Episode. Right. So we've touched on that before, but Root of Evil is a really amazing uh, podcast to listen to, especially if you're ever interested in family dynamics, about fi- family dynamics and resiliency, yeah. actually, because the fact that they survived that background is a miracle in itself. Yeah. But that was neat talking to him and to realize, like, he was saying that, oh, well, that was purely narrative. This is this is what really happened. Right. So, you know, of, of course, the I Am the Night was beautifully produced mm-hmm. and and directed and put together well. But it's not it's not fact. It's sure, fiction. Sure, sure. It was just kind of cool to sit there and talk to him and hear his voice after hearing him on Root of Evil. Yeah, and reading his books, and I thought that was. Fun. And then uh, Carrie Martin of White Wine True Crime and Pretty Scary Podcast was there. And we had a lot of fun with her as well and might have something coming up 
um, as a collab with her. So. Yeah, I didn't know. You just texted me the other day. She has another podcast uh-huh. other than the crime one. What, yeah, and what it's is called it? Pretty Scary. And, and is it, it is it paranormal stuff? Or? It's all sorts of things. The one I just listened to was about truthers, and it's pretty oh. funny. Wow. So, yeah. Truthers. Yeah. yeah. Those people, they're the only ones that know that scrappy band of truthers out there that, <laughs> you know, know everything about medication and school shootings right. and, and presidential birth certificates. That's right. Yep. Yep. So they know, that, <laughs> they know Shiloh. I know. They know. Because they watch YouTube videos. <laughs> exactly. Oh my God. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that was a blast. We, we, we had a lot of fun and, uh, the room was packed and it was cool. It's and thank you to our... everybody that came out. We yeah. really appreciate it. We thought it was just going to be our family. <laughs> we I actually know. filled up the room <laughs> with some really great questions. There were several crime writers in mm-hmm. the audience that, mm-hmm. you know, were very interested in, yeah. in all aspects of it. So that was cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so have you texted me and, a new podcast from Wondery. Have you been listening to The Shrink Next Door yet? No, that's the one. Okay, that's how off my brain has been because I was finishing Root of Evil and then I started um, Sleuth, which oh, okay. was is also very good about another crime. But um, The Shrink Next Door the Shrink is pretty Next good. I is it? Oh, great. To all three episodes that are out so far, but. Man, talking. <laughs> it's so funny because I listened to that back to back with. And tell uh, what it's about again, because that's one of the critiques we got from one of our listeners is that we, we actually, <laughs> well, we refer to podcasts that people might be interested in, but we should, we need to tell them a little bit of yeah. like, what it's about. Or if we mention a particular crime, give a little bit of sure, background on it. Sure. Um, we don't assume because when we assume. Right. Well, we and if you ask, hadn't interrupted me, I was going to tell what it was about. But. <laughs> It's totally fine. That's our, our, <laughs> I can't even think of a cute word for it. <laughs> I know. It's our, our dynamic. I'm an interrupter. Um, so it's about a psychiatrist that completely exploits a client like you wouldn't believe. And I'm only three episodes in, so. And it's true story. We'll true story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is but it, I, is it, um, is it current or is it historical? No, I always like just it, pray that it's like 50 years ago when it was the Wild West and all this oh, work. Oh, no, 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 no. It's it's fairly current. And from what I'm hearing so far, the guy is still in practice. So I don't know. That may end by the time this wraps up. But, um, but I listened to that back to back with our friends over at Yeah, No, Yeah. They just did one on Dr. Phil oh, that they just released uh, you yesterday. You've got to send me a link to that one. <laughs> So I've just been hearing all about, you know, exploitative mental health professionals this week, and it's made me be on my game. Okay. <laughs> oh, you know what? I Now I remember which sleuth this is. This is the sleuth about, oh my God, I'm going to get hate mail for this, I'm sure, but I'll deserve it. Okay. So it's about the community theater actor in Long, is it Long Beach? And he murdered his best friend. And his best friend's tutor in order to get their, like, not particularly impressive savings accounts funds so that he could take his fiance on their honeymoon together. What? And then there's clips from 
the he's in state prison now. He's up at San Quentin. His fiance is now implicated in being part of, you know, either an accomplice, either though she got off with a misdemeanor for obstructing justice or something like that. And but they had a Dr. Phil um, episode as well. But yeah, Sleuth, this is a good one, too, because he's acting so bad. You hear him in interviews and he it's like an SNL skit with Shakespearean actor guy. Oh, no, it's totally embarrassing. Oh, it's embarrassing. Wow. Yeah, there's it feels like there's a lull sometimes in true crime stuff and then all of a sudden everything comes out at once and I can't listen and watch enough. Like there's not enough hours in the day. I feel like I need to start a, a spreadsheet. I mean seriously, I need no, to sp- Don't be one of those. People. I may have Please to because I want to make sure I'm sure there's someone already doing it. Just you can download it somewhere <laughs> okay. and check it off. Um so today we are going to talk about The Anthony Soul case, a.k.a. the Cleveland Strangler. And what we're going to do is I'm going to sort of wrap that into talking about sex offender risk assessment. Um, I think that for both you and I, we probably get the most questions and eyebrow raises and inquiries when we talk about when we used to work with sex offenders. Right. Um, I actually just started doing that again. Um, my private practice opened you back up. You tell me nothing. I did not know about this. <laughs> um, I, I just started seeing a client who just got out that okay. I was seeing before he went in. State so, or federal time? Um, he did state time in a different state. Oh, interesting. But he's back, and so he's back living here in California, and he's having to kind of figure out the whole probation system and treatment and what's that what that's all like um so i'm not doing sex offender treatment with him because obviously he's going to get that somewhere else but we're just sort of managing emotional regulation and getting him through kind of this transition period so um but yeah there's so much interest when we talk about that well i should say there's interest or there's like that look of fear like oh my god please stop talking to me about this right i've I've, I've witnessed that before yeah because i'm you know verbally vomiting on somebody i know this is so cool let me tell you about this horrible crime do you well do you find like working around a lot of law enforcement officers when you bring that up are they just like so put off by it uh, it's, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I think a lot of people that aren't in the site community, well, even within the site community, there are people that are in this line of work, um, for many different motivations. And one of the things I think that's, that comes from my MFT background really sort of laid this foundation for understanding that even the worst of our society are human and to have compassion for them on some level and to understand that very rarely does anybody just come fully formed as a sociopath into this world. Sure. You know, something happens to them or things that are out of their control. And more and more that we find out about sort of uh, genetics and hardwiring, we're realizing mm-hmm. that those have a big impact on it. So while the the area of sex crimes is challenging for, for me as well. And I'm like, you know, there's a high burnout rate in the people who do this kind of work right. as clinicians. Right. And there's a high burnout rate for the cops. Like it, Everyone it really in the starts criminal to, justice system. Yeah, I it, have stats on judges that oversee these cases and the nurses that are doing the um, sexual assault testing. Yeah. Like 
everyone is touched by it. And I you know I have a, a detective I work with who is like the greatest guy. Well, they're, they're I work with wonderful people. I just knocking on wood right now because I really love my job so much. And, you know, it's not unusual to hear even the nicest ones go. I think they should all be killed. Right. Right. I mean, they have a really harsh yeah. and I, and I have to go, okay, if I'm going to have compassion for humanity, then I have to have compassion for these people who are parents. Right. And what they're thinking about is, Oh my God, how can anybody do that to a child? Sure. If, that, if that happened to my child, you know, I understand, sure. sure. but it also, you know, we, you know, as clinicians, as researchers, we have to look at the big picture and understand that that doesn't help. Yeah. You know, you, you, we have to think bigger. Yeah. I always, um, through my experience of teaching some of this stuff, including sort of this risk assessment stuff that I'm going to go into when I would teach to law enforcement, I very quickly learned how I had to phrase things oh, yeah. and that it wasn't just because I was a doctor and was coming at it from this clinical standpoint. You're right. They're still parents. They are people who are prosecuting these crimes. So they're putting a lot of investment into um, putting these people away as well as interacting with the victims. Whereas I've never interacted with the victims. That would be the hard thing for me to do. God bless those people that can do that work. And I think they, you know, say, well, if you're cut out for that work, then good. I'm glad someone's doing it. Right. Um, but I, I, <laughs> it is, it's about phrasing. It's when about you're... phrasing because I, I think we can come off so clinical and cold and like, here's what it is. And they're, they're just coming at it from a different place. Um, which I think is, you have to, I'm not really sure that if I, if I was in law enforcement, I wouldn't sure, I'm not sure I would have the bandwidth or I would have the luxury of Mm -hmm. being able to think in big picture. They have to think in big picture in other ways to be able to investigate and prosecute these crimes. When I took my polygraph with the FBI, when I was processing with Mm -hmm. them, I, you know, the guy, the, the polygraph examiners like trying to make you comfortable and like sort of building rapport with you. Right. Cause they want you to be forthcoming and like them. And it's sort of like doing an interview or an interrogation. <laughs> and so we're chatting and he's like, so tell me about like, what, what do you do? And that's when we were in internship. And so I said, oh, I do sex offender treatment, like very just blanket statement. Right. And his whole demeanor changed. And he looked at me deadpan. He goes, oh, I work crimes against children. And I just thought, oh, shit, this is not going to go very well. Well, And I thought, oh, my God, it's my polygraph is going to be tainted because this guy hates me because he thinks I'm like the sex offender. Like advocate. we're hug-a-thugs. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And I wanted to go, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. We're all on the same side. I'm we're, trying to keep people are. from reoffending. Absolutely. We're all on the same and side. And if no one's doing treatment them what they're just coming out of prison and running amok. That's not a good answer. Right. But anyway, well, that's, that, that reminds me of my, when I was going for the interview process to be a law enforcement psych for not the agency you work for, right. for another agency, the background check was designed for somebody that was 22 years old and going to be a a law enforcement officer. Right, because that's the majority of what exactly. they're doing. Exactly. I'm not. I was I was pushing half a century. 
of age. Right. I had to go on, like, I mean, the, the paperwork and the process was ridiculous. And they ask you incredibly personal questions that I answered 100% honest and accurate. And the woman who was looking through my paperwork was just like, she went pale. I mean, it, and it wasn't anything that was, there was nothing that was illegal. It was just like, yeah, I'm putting this all out for you. Right. And she even said, uh, I, I think this may disqualify you. I'm like, you know what? If it disqualifies me, it does. But right. like, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm, I've yeah, been around for a long time. Right. Okay. And then I think she went in and showed it to a sergeant. And the sergeant was like, of course, he's right. He's not a law enforcement. Don't hold him to the same thing. Sure, so. sure. But that that's a rough process, too. Oh, it was, it was brutal. backgrounds. It was brutal. Um, wow. Yeah, I worked background investigations for a little while. That was fun, I thought. Um, okay. So what did you watch to prep for this? Well, you know, this was one of those that like we were talking about with Amanda Knox, where it's, it's in this, this crime is in the back of your head because it's so brutal and it, you know, it, the trial was long and complicated and the uh, investigation took Mm -hmm. a lot of work. So it had totally gruesome, totally gruesome. Yeah. But also uh, coming along at a time in you know U.S. history, right like right during the economic downturn. So there's a lot of distraction going on. And um, but once I got into it, I was like, oh, I remember this, and I remember this. And the thing that immediately grabbed me about this about Anthony Soul is that is the parallels between him and Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay. I mean, some real parallels. And I don't mean necessarily characterological parallels. You know, he doesn't, Sowell does not have the, the cannibalism. Right. He doesn't have like the, the really the primitive same. drives. I mean, they're coming from a, a violent place. Uh, well, both of them are violent. But the idea that from a sociopolitical perspective, the idea that it was in depressed economic areas, it was marginalized communities people of color or gay gay men that were disappearing mm-hmm. and the and also completely understaffed and 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 ill-equipped police force right. to deal with this so there's a lot of things i mean we're talking about uh well over 10 years ago in Cleveland, Ohio, Cleveland in this area, beautifully called Mount Pleasant you <laughs> I know, know which it's know. it's nothing but pleasant right but Back in the 50s, it was this amazing place where um, African-Americans were moving back to that area because there was industry and there were blue and white collar jobs for people of color. And there was this massive influx of people that were really solidly middle class. Well, then almost overnight in the 60s. All of those industries went away, and all these people then lost their incomes. Drug, crack cocaine just ravaged the entire community, Mm -hmm. and suddenly there are abandoned houses, and crime goes up. And really, the entire – the the whole environment in that area changed, and it was really, really rough. And Anthony Soul is a product of that environment and, you know, probably had some wiring to begin with. Um, he is an African-American guy who was born August 19th, 1959 in East Cleveland. And he was known as being an incredibly polite child and put together and quiet and shy and respectful. And as 
I've had to do a bunch of other research because there's bits of research in the Vice documentary and in the Amazon Prime documentary. These things start to come out that, like, I wish somebody would put all this together. In fact, I think the book, is there the book House of Horrors? Yes. That one, I'm really sad that I didn't get to read the book because I think that author actually put everything in one place because because the the vice documentary and then unseen is the name of the documentary that is now on Amazon prime. I felt like uh, there are a couple contradictions. Yes. Um, but really like when I go back on this and I did this, a a timeline is really important to look at. Yes. And and some of that is skewed a little bit, but you're right. There's, Watching both was very informative. It wasn't like watching the same thing twice. Right. I mean, there are some things, you know, he, um, I mean, just a, there's not a ton of background information. So, excuse me, we got to complain about all of our mouth noises from one of our (laughs) listeners. So I apologize because I just had a soda. So if I'm burping, I apologize. Anyway, so one of the things that I found, uh, Interesting was, you know, going back to that comparison with Jeffrey Dahmer is there has been so much research done on him where they interview people he went to school with and there's pictures from his high school annual and, you know, there's all this what we call collateral information and there's very little on soul. There's very little of that. What we do know is that he lived with his mother and grandmother in a very large house, very large, beautiful house in Mount Pleasant, which is in um, East Cleveland. And at one point, his aunt, his mother's sister, passed away. And her, I believe, six children came to live with him in the house. And there were already nine children. Yeah. Like there were a lot right. of people in this house. And Although we don't hear a lot about the various dynamics in that environment, what we do hear about, they say over and over again, is that immediately there was a shift in dynamic of how Anthony and his family, his siblings were treated versus how their cousins were treated. And almost immediately, the female cousins were treated with a high level of abuse by his biological mother to the point where they were made to strip Mm-hmm. They were tied uh, with their hands, I think, to the stair posts and then beaten with electrical cords. Right. Pin in that, very important electrical cord to yes. remember for later on. And at one point in later testimony by the cousins, there was a female cousin who comes forward and ad- admitted that at one point when she started exhibiting secondary sexual characteristics, basically when she hit adolescence and starting having breasts and having pubic hair, he immediately after a beating took her upstairs and raped her. And then her, her, his sexual assault of her was on a daily basis and then included other male relatives, other, and she doesn't say if any of her direct relatives, but definitely his brother and an right. uncle. Right. So there was, she was 11, 11, right. So pretty horrific level. Right. But what's interesting is that with all those kids in there, you, if it's happening at that level, it's happening at a macro level as well. Oh, but sure. we, but we don't see any information on right. that in the like 15 different sources I looked at. Yeah. I, I think the only thing additional was what his half sister said was that, 
how he was just a mean child. Right. She describes him as a very mean, always right. aggressive, yeah. which is interesting because it means he can control himself. Right. Because in public, he was super polite, mm-hmm. even as a mm-hmm. young teen, right? Yeah. I, I think what she said is that when, when he was upset, he would treat her like a stranger. Like she, she said he would just come at me like I was a stranger and he was just super aggressive. She makes, she makes that distinction. If you're mad at a sibling, you're always holding back, you know, you'll fight, but you're holding back. But he looked at her as if there was no, no holding back. Yeah. None, no limits whatsoever. Yeah. Which would make sense given that, you know, the dynamic set up by his biological mom is that, you know, this level of violence is acceptable in the house. So do you think I should cut in here and give the self-report of how he described his childhood because I have that from a psych report. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know <laughs> Should we just that. go back and forth and do it like that? Yeah. I think that would be interesting. Um, okay, so I just want to kind of set this up for a second. So I have wanted to do this case for a while because I used to use this in training with new interns to talk about the importance of risk assessment and how you have to do it very comprehensively. And I would use this psych report that I got my hands on to illustrate that. And I'll, I'll say more about that as we get into the, the risk assessment part. Um, but essentially, when you're doing any sort of psych evaluation, you're going to interview the subject and get all of their background history from them. It's just self-report, yeah. right? They're just telling you what they want to tell you or their perspective. Um, They can be lying to you. They can be omitting stuff. But basically, we take it and we stick it in a part of a report saying that this is their self-report. And it gives just a decent background history. And then, like you said, if there's collateral data that we can get from outside sources, that would also go in there. So I have – this is – to skip forward a little bit, this is the report after he initially went to prison the first time. This is in 2005. He gets out, and this therapist is tasked with essentially doing a sexual predator evaluation for whatever that means in Cleveland because it's different in absolutely every state. Um, but and it's how long ago now? Like that's uh, also 2005. So 2005, yeah, right. a long time. Yeah. So whatever it meant at that time. Um, in the state of Ohio, essentially it comes down to being a risk assessment. What is his risk for reoffense? Now, also one thing that to, to harken back to what I was saying before of having to jump all over the place to get information. He was in the military. Like one whole article didn't even mention he had been in the military for eight years. Yeah, he left he, at 18. He left at 18, joined the Marines. Um, Got was married to another Marine, to another Marine, had a child with her that like, I guess they don't, I think probably it's that they don't want to be part of well, any of this. Of course. And then they divorced as soon as he got out and he married another woman or became intimate with her. Like was in, he was in stable relationships for a while, but that all just started. It seems like the crack sort of sure. the drug use really kind of turned on whatever nascent right issues he had. So he reports that he grew up in a single-parent family in an urban area. Um, He reported that his home was crowded and his family was working class. Um, He said his parents separated when he was an infant, and he talked about both of his parents in very positive terms. He said he remained in regular contact with his dad throughout 
his life until his father passed away. Um, he said mom is currently 2005 in good health. She's 86. Um, and she resides with a sister that I have. Um, he said that he had many friends while growing up, was teased, bullied a little bit by other children, um, denied all forms of abuse, denied neglect, denied that he ever attempted to run away from home. He said he got a well, along well with his parents and just in general, I had a good childhood. And then I left at 18 and went and joined the Marines. So, okay. So as an assessor, is that pretty common for people to have, you know, it, when they're being interviewed in this sense? Cause I remember when I briefly worked for you contracting, right. everybody just wanted to paint it as this rosy. Well, think about it. They're sitting down with this assessor for the first time meeting you who wants to put all their shit out there True. in an evaluation. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. You know, especially so, when it's something of this nature, right? right. So this is very <clears throat> common to get in an initial evaluation. I almost felt like initial evaluations were just worth not much. Once you start working with them in therapy and you start talking to them and you start getting this, the real stuff out, that's when it happens. But this, yeah, this is super common. You, it, especially with, you know, someone that's a repeat offender or has been to prison a lot, they're not going to give you shit. Like, come on. They're just like, let me get out of here and get to whatever I got to do next. So, yeah, I'll make it short and sweet. The ones that don't talk, those reports are really short. <laughs> yeah, because you can't you get anything. On some days, you're like, thank God, because I don't want to write a long report. I'll get it all out later. Um, but it doesn't give you a lot to work with in the right. beginning. So, um, so there is information in here. He did talk about being in a relationship in the Marine Corps, um, having a 27-year-old daughter, Let's see. Um, he said that he was separated and divorced because he and his wife, who were in the Marines, were often sent to different military posts and they couldn't spend time together. And at the time of this report, he was not in a dating relationship. Um, I think later, it might be somewhere in this report later on, but I think there was some domestic violence reported. Yes, there was. Him. There was a charge. So, yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to give kind of, of course he wants to avoid talking about that. I'm sure. 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 So do you have any more of him sort of leading up to his first offense or the first offense that he gets caught for? Just, I mean, there's, it's pretty sketchy from what I was looking at, um, that he had discharged after it seems like a pretty successful military career and then was in one of these manufacturing jobs or he was, you know, had sort of a blue collar job that he got laid off. I mean, I was trying to did he get fired versus laid off. I would think he probably was laid off because he received unemployment benefits for a while. And then he was supporting himself doing sales of scrap metal and kind of like, I guess, just hustling. And he ended up in this three-story house, which that's another thing that bugs me is like, they don't give us, did he own the house? Was it a rental? It was this massive, uh, looks like a three-story house, you know, I mean, with an attic and a basement, you know, on the corner of a street. Right. I mean, it was in, in very bad disrepair, but you look at that house and you're like, 
kind of big space. That's a big space. Yeah, all of the houses were sort of like that on the street. Right. They were big family homes. But what's interesting is, is so the house has since been torn down, and I think it's in the Vice documentary, and they go back, and the lot does look really small (laughs) and narrow, and they kind of stand there, and they're like, wow, it looks small now without the the house of horrors here. Well, that's that's actually a... That's being married to a production designer that has taught me like, you know, you, his space actually expands when something's in it, you yeah. know, because we, it's all about our perception. Right. But yeah, that, it just seems like, um, you know, even the store owner, there was, it seems like, uh, I think he was maybe, uh, Middle Eastern mm. or, or, uh, Russian, that you know, I got the impression because he's this guy's in into the, both the documentaries I saw that his family had been working this corner sort of five and dime, not five and dime, but like grocery store, store liquor store, right yeah. across the street from Soul's house. Right. So he you know said very nice things about it. And said like he was always polite. I saw him on a regular basis, and then everything changed. And then he described like the physical changes of him losing weight and the dark circles around his eyes, and, and then seeing him actually purchasing crack. And Anthony sees him and, and gets has, embarrassed, like really shameful look. And then he also gave the shopping list too that he was coming in buying uh, heavyweight garbage bags and you know other things like cleaning supplies. Well, not but, enough, not enough. Because when you see the inside of that house, it's really it's almost you know what the inside of that house looked like Ed Gein's barn. Yeah, if you ever see those pictures, which are pretty horrific. Just to know about his teenage years, so at sixteen. He was arrested and adjudicated um, as a juvie for breaking and entering. Okay. So, you know. So, look. The start get, of something there. Right. So, you know, I think we talked. I don't know if we mentioned it last time about one of the trainings that's kind of floating around for us to take advantage of. And a colleague of mine took it. And the one of the new theories is about personality disorders really having a strong biological basis. And I... I you know, I'm not informed enough to have an opinion on that. I want to learn more about it before I start making any kind of opinions and jabbering. But I do find it interesting that some of the defense, I guess when he went to retrial, they tried to say that he had been given improper defense and that they hadn't looked at the factors involved in his upbringing, which, you know, I think that's a really, that's a very interesting take. I mean, yeah, he was exposed to violence. I'm sure if if he was exposed to a woman that was so disinhibited that she beats her own nieces and nephews with an electrical cord naked in front of her other children. And yes, that is very traumatic. I will be the first one to admit that that's traumatic. But you don't imitate those behaviors unless you have a little conduct disorder or sociopathy already in your makeup, right? Right. Right, and then because not, on top of that, substance abuse. Right, and we did, because there were literally 15 other kids right. in that house. And they didn't become serial killers. Although a couple of them were were engaged in, they were all, I mean, there were probably several of them that were engaged in um, sexual activities that were inappropriate for their I'm, age. I bet. Yeah. I bet. So the, the, the crime that this report is sort of linked to is a rape charge from... Crap. Where'd it go? <laughs> oh, and by the way, like this report 1990, that we're... Sorry. 1990? Yeah. So the report that we're referring to for anybody who's listening that would be concerned about confidentiality in a case like this when 
when something's being adjudicated in a defense uh, position and their mental health is supposed to be a part of that process, that makes it part of the public record. Right. So it was um, there are a couple articles about this report actually being leaked by a judge at some point, Um, but they were able to track back that. He signed a consent form saying that this is not confidential, that it would be used in court proceedings. So we we do that with most forensic type documents and assessments saying, look, this is going to be used in court, which can be made into public right. record at some point. Um, and they acknowledge that and they actually have a consent sheet that he signed acknowledging that um, because it did come up later on. Uh, maybe in sentencing or something like that, that this was out there. But you can Google it and find it. This isn't like, you know, some therapist in Ohio sent it to me in the mail or something. Right. That would be bad. (laughs) That would be bad. Um, So, again, the crime that we're talking about is from 1990, and a woman by the name of Melvette Sockwell she was raped by Soul in his home. She escaped out onto the roof and was able to signal to a neighbor to call the police. And they moved forward with prosecution in that case. And he was found guilty and he was sentenced to 15 years for this rape. So this one was, it was 1990. I just want to highlight that he was discharged from the Marine Corps in 1985 and came back to East Cleveland. In 1988, a woman by the name of Rosalind Gardner was found strangled in the neighborhood. Right. That went unsolved. Um, in 1989, um, specifically February of 1989, Carmela Pratter was found dead in an abandoned house. That went unsolved. In March of 1989, Mary Thomas was found strangled on the street, same street. That went unsolved. They were those were not any of the bodies that they ended up finding, but that was all. It fits the timeline and between it, him coming home right. and this rape that he was convicted for. Which also we should say that in domestic violence, well, not even going into the realm of domestic violence, but strangulation is a particular form of violent act. It's not like it looks in television or the movies or, or how it's been fictionalized. It is a brutal, intimate, personal attack on another person because it's not an instant death. It takes quite a while to kill someone by strangulation, whether it's with your hands or with a garrote or an electrical cord, as we come to find out. It's a lot of commitment rather than impulsivity. Absolutely. And watching somebody slowly die. Right. Over a period of like six to nine minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not this instantaneous thing that they get up and walk away with. They have to be really committed to that act. Right. So that by saying that, I'm trying to illustrate that that's not a common way that somebody would kill someone impulsively. Right. Right. When he goes to prison, so he... Refused to participate in the sex offender treatment program. Oh, so wow. usually, usually in prison, they cannot make you participate. As part of your post-incarceration release, you do have to participate. Yeah. But inside prison, especially federal prisons, have more standardized, structured programs for sex offender treatment programs. It's voluntary. Um, 
and not a ton of people take advantage of it. No, well, you remember when you and I did groups for our federal um, right. parolees, it's like, well, why would I have taken that treatment? I didn't do it. I mean, that's right. what I would hear from three oh, yeah, quarters totally. of the guys that totally. I was treating. And they don't incentivize it in the federal system because some they do, like a drug abuse program, they'll say, okay, maybe we'll let you out six months to a year early if you take this program. They don't incentivize it on purpose because they want people to take it that really think that they need it. And some people do take advantage of it and do the hard work and get a oh, yeah. head start. So, I, yeah, we want to give credit to those. Um, I've had clients that did it and then were sort of mentors to kind of go out and recruit other people that needed to be in it. And I thought that was kind of a neat thing. Um, but he refused to be part of the program. Interestingly, there was an inmate that was, um, I think, a cellmate of his that said he was very sort of protective and territorial over the female guards. So if another inmate would give a female guard a hard time, he would go confront that inmate. Which he also did with his cousin. I do remember in one of the research they said that, or maybe it was his half-sister, because there's one female relative that still, still feels very connected to him. He witnessed as a teenager a girl her age confronting her, like on the schoolyard, and she reports that the level of aggression that he threatened that other girl with scared her. Oh, really? So that kind of behavior had already been set into motion, even as a, yeah. a teenager. Wow. So he gets out. This assessment is done. Um, so this is where I want to talk a little bit about the assessment that was done and um, what a better way, more comprehensive way of doing an assessment is that we know now. Because so, you do, because it's the the whole approach has evolved, right? right? Right, and this so this this report actually doesn't have the name on, of the therapist on it, which that's great. Um, and so this is no disrespect to the therapist that did this, because I don't know what it was like working in this field in two thousand five. I know in California it was very loosey goosey. There weren't standards yet. There weren't here's what you need to use as assessments. None of that existed. Now it is all very standardized. And California, honestly, was one of, like, the last to jump on board. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, you think that we're, like... Well, we are in know, so many other ways. Forefront. We're progressive in that way. Right. But, it, so it's come a long way. But, it's it again, it's, it's a really good way to illustrate why, if you do one assessment and capture sort of one snapshot, it's not the whole piece of the pie. Right. And... So in this assessment, you do the background history. Um, this therapist also did what we call the ABLE assessment for oh, sexual the able. interest in children. Um, what is and, that, and what does it stand for? What is the, is, that's an acronym, right? Oh, God. Assessment. We don't even remember. Do you remember what? It, do you want to explain what it is, just real quick? I don't. I barely remember. It's been okay. so long. I haven't done one in probably <laughs> so seven years. Yeah. And then, oh Jesus, I have so many like war stories from sex offender treatment. Okay, so the able is looking for deviant sexual interest, and it, there's different versions. Generally, we're looking at interest in children or violence. And so what you do is you sit the client down at a oh, computer. this one with the slideshow, the, yes. the altered photos. The 1980s. Oh, God, like, they were so bad. Okay. So you sit them down at a computer. And basically what they're doing is rating each photo that comes up on a scale of 
how interested they are in that person in the photo if they were to be having some sort of sexual contact with them. Right. And so just for further edification, there are no nudes. Right. It's, but it's kids from toddler all the way up, all the way up to like, you know, like almost maybe just under middle age Mm -hmm. and fully dressed, you know, maybe a bathing suit. And it looks, I think we were told that some of the photographs had actually been digitally altered so that there's they weren't, they were like, they might be mixing features of several different people. So, but it's like, you know, kind of the eighties, um, kind of glamour girl with the big hat, you know, turned around looking over her shoulder. And then there's, you know, maybe like a 10 year old boy in swim trunks at the beach, like just smiling at the camera. So it's, it's all over the place. Um, and it's not actually rating what they're reporting, sort of this Likert scale of what they're reporting. It's measuring something else. That's what they think that they're, that's what they think. They're supposed to rate it on a (laughs) one to 10 point Likert scale of of their interest. Like, does this photo interest you? You know, you fill in a little radio button. Yes. Um, but it's actually measuring something else, which I'm not going to tell you the secret of what it measures. <laughs> um, and they have to keep their hand on the mouse of the computer. It's very important. They have to right. keep their There's hand on the mouse. There's all these like structured instruction, structured instructions. <laughs> I'm going to coin that term. Um, so there's that, and she did give him that assessment. That's not the one I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to be talking about the Static 99. So the Static 99 is a tool to assess risk for future offending. It's a rubric, right? That's what I remember it being because there's points. Yes. Like you, you, you scale all of these aspects of their life. Yeah. So there's, there's 10 items and you look at each item and you give them a point and then the total falls into a range from low risk, medium risk, high risk. There's actually several more um, categories now, but at this time there were some limited limitations to it. Um, And it's kind of, I think I explained this before. It might've been in our paraphilia episode, but risk assessment, it's not fully predictive. We can't predict the future, right? So it's, it's in the same way that insurance companies assess how likely are you to get into an accident? Actuarial. Actuarial. Um, so if they want to charge you a higher premium, they would well, it, look at your risk factors. Right. If you're somebody that does high risk sports, if you're like a, an adrenaline junkie, right. your or rates you're, are going to be higher. Yeah. If you're a teenage boy that has <clears throat> a sports car, you know, there's two factors right there that put you at higher risk. You may be the safest driver or the best person at your sport, you know, whatever you do, jumping off buildings or climbing rocks or whatever. (laughs) Um, But they're going to say, okay, you're higher risk. So we're going to charge you a little bit more. So the way that the static was developed essentially is that they looked at offenders, sexual offenders who had reoffended over and over again. And they said, what are common factors that these people have? And that's how they came up with each of these items. So item number one just looks at age. So if you are younger, you are more likely to commit another crime. Because? Because people age out of crime. Because your brain gets developed. You're not as impulsive. You're more more impulsive and more driven by, like, testosterone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The second item is whether or not you have lived with an intimate partner for at least two years. Interesting. So that is 
basically looking at like relationship stability. Um, if you're able to have stability in areas of your life, you're, you are just less likely to commit a crime. Um, we should probably put a note in that. And we got, I don't know if we talked about this in other podcasts, but that, is also a huge factor in passing your psych eval. If you're going to be a cop, <laughs> if you, if you haven't been in a long-term relationship, that really is right. a red flag on your profile. Right. Uh, wow. There's a lot of overlapping. I know. Today. Isn't it? That thin line <laughs> It's weird. Um, and so, you know, that really counts against like younger offenders because maybe they haven't had the life experience of being in relationships, but it's like too bad. So sad. We've, I've had clients that were members of the clergy, just their lifestyle is they don't have romantic partners. Oh, well, you're still at higher risk because it's, of that. you're still going to get that ding on yeah, your, you're still going to get a point. Yeah. Um, item number three, it's like golf. you don't want the high score, right? Yes, 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 yes. Um, item number three is looking at a history of violence because we know what's the best predictor of future behavior, past behavior, past behavior. Um, so three, four, and five all sort of look at history of violence, of non-sexual violence, and then of prior offenses. So have you been charged with um, offenses in the past? Do you have a criminal history, essentially? Six looks at, have you been convicted of offenses? So we can kind of look at, okay, how much have you been arrested for? And then what did you actually get convicted of? Item number seven looks at convictions for any non-contact sex offenses. And then... Did we go over what non-contact no, was? No, I, I think we have before, but we, go ahead. Very and, quickly. But yeah. non-contact would um, is uh, like pornography, uh, owning pornography. So uh, that may be a person that never actually has physical contact with a victim, but it's still against the law and it's an indicator of potential problems when they're... Right. Know. And the reason they sort of parse this out is because if if you have a contact offense, so a, an offense where you actually assault a victim in person, but you also have sort of this variety of non-contact offenses as well, where you're um, luring people online or you're viewing child pornography or illegal pornography, then it just shows you have a more variety of sexual right. offenses. Under Which is bill. not good. No. We would much not. rather you have like one specific... Right. little channel for your perversion. And then items eight, nine, and 10 look at your victimology. So item number eight is, do you have any unrelated victims? Meaning the victims are not related to you because you are actually at higher risk if your victim is not related to you because you, you are now going outside of those sort of easy, familiar top targets, excuse me, um, and possibly offending against someone that is harder to get no, to. And is that, yeah, so that would, okay, that was going to be my leap then. So you think that's probably because they're saying that it takes more planning, more grooming. It's less situational and opportunistic. Okay. Yeah. So there has to go the planning, uh, and it's not so much about impulsivity. It's about them being able to. Yeah. Okay. That makes because sense. Because if you think about it, you know, most offenses and most sex offenses are perpetrated by people that you're related to or people that you know really well. Which is completely fucked up. Right. But, but that's yeah. the most common. So if we're going to give a higher point to someone who's willing to go out. Go and outside offend, that comfort zone. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. 
Nine is looking at any stranger victims. Now, if maybe the person's not related to you, but maybe there's not also, they can also not be a stranger. But if it's a complete stranger, that's when you're talking about very dangerous predatory behavior. That's like the van trundling down the street and snatches the girl off the bike and takes off. Which is more rare. Right. Hence why it deserves an extra point. Right. And then the last item looks at the um, whether or not the victim is male. If the victim is male, you are at higher risk because people tend to victimize females more. Um, and those that offend against males commit the offense over and over again at higher rates. And don't get caught. It's just what right. the statistics show. Because we tend, because I think we tend not to look at those. We make assumptions. I mean, even though the higher rate is male offenders against female victims, there's more of a concentration on that. Where, yeah, it's that's a messed up dynamic. Yes. So Anthony Sowell gets a score of one on this, and so he got one point for the item of his victim being unrelated to him. So she wasn't a stranger. She wasn't a male. Right. And all the other stuff for, you know, more minutia that I'm going to get into, he didn't get any points for. So he gets one point, which means he falls in the category of being a low risk offender. Um, so back in 2005, that's all that was done as far as risk assessment. So we have this man that committed a rape, served 15 years, and he was deemed low risk. And then all this shit happened afterwards. Yeah, we're right? that that silence is us just looking at each <laughs> other is, because it it's. Is. I think we both get the as much as we laugh about this stuff. You know, I wouldn't want to be in that evaluator's shoes. Well, and I've been in that. You, yeah, shoes. yeah, I know. And it's, I've I've done risk assessments for people that, with what I have to work with, even something more comprehensive than this, putting in together other factors. What I have is they come out as low risk, and I've I've had people that come out as low risk, and, go and out they and do offend. horrific yep. things. Um, I've also had people come out as low as high risk, and as far as we know, they don't commit another crime. So it so it's not a perfect again, science by any means. It's not prediction; it's a risk assessment. Right, you're you are doing your best to say this is what category they fall into. So the people higher risk should get the more intense uh, monitoring by probation and parole and more intense treatment. The low risk people are going to get less intense versions of those things. So the reason I use this as a teaching point is because now we also, especially at least here in California and it's pretty, pretty much this way across the nation is that you have to have your static assessment and you also have a, have to have a dynamic assessment. So static, this one I just went through, it's based on historical factors and that stuff does not change. Like he cannot get a better score than that. It's always, it's based on the history. So it is what it is. If you bring in dynamic factors, things that could get better or worse over time, i.e. if they're going through treatment and doing well, or if they relapse on substances and start doing poorly again, you can sort of ebb and flow their score based on their current risk factors going on in the moment. Got it. So what we do now is, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but we do the static assessment and we do a dynamic assessment. 
And then we redo the dynamic risk assessment like every six months to see where are they at. And honestly, I was doing it in my head every single week. What's going on with this guy yeah. is, you know, is. Yeah, um, because you're so used to using yeah. that tool. And then where I mean, and then polygraph was a regular part of it right. as well. Right. So polygraph was, was part of their probation or parole conditions. And what we did, we, we, in California, we call it the containment model. So if you think of the offender in the middle of a triangle and one point of that triangle is treatment, one point is supervision, probation or parole, and the other point is polygraph and all of those tools being used to contain that person and keep an eye on what they're doing. Because as treatment, we only see them couple hours a week, right? Right. But they're telling us maybe some really intimate things, whereas probation and parole, they could be lying to them, but they're going into their households and talking to their family. Right. So if we're all talking to each other and then the polygraph, we're sort of testing them and seeing You're getting a more three-dimensional picture of the person. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, he he gets scored as a low, um, unfortunately, and then obviously he's a very, very dangerous person because after he gets out that's when the shit starts to hit the fan well it also occurs to me that so he gets out and he's stable for a short amount of time as is observed by the liquor store owner and then he starts to decompensate but he finds a method of victimology of typing his victims that is very successful for him. He is a drug user himself. There's a lot of drug use going on and sex work going on or even, and and I'm not making a blanket statement that all of his victims were sex workers, but he lured them back time and time again, come back and smoke with me, come back and smoke with me. And then there would be, he would assault them, make them perform oral sex, vaginal sex, then flip them around for anal sex and in that final act would wrap a electrical cord around their neck and garrote them. Right. Right. And I, I really loved the unseen documentary because you get to hear from these two surviving women, well, three total, but two in particular that they are sober. Now they are in an absolutely different place. And, and they're thriving. I mean, it's thriving. a relief. It's a relief oh, to yes. see that people can come out of that horrific of a period absolutely. of life. Absolutely. absolutely. And for them to tell their stories of survival and just really, I, I thought it was an incredibly powerful documentary. Um, so I'm just going to go through sort of timeline mm-hmm. after he gets out of prison. If you could see my notes right now, it's it's basically an entire typed page of just all these women going missing and being affected by him in this neighborhood. So he gets out in 05 and it seems like the decompensation didn't really start for a couple of years later. No, yeah. Yeah. So, he was, he was been able to, he was able to keep money coming in and right. Yeah. Right. So May, 2007, Crystal Dozier goes missing June, 2007, just a month later Tashana Culver goes missing And then there's kind of a lull until August 2008, about a year goes by, and LaShonda Long goes missing, October, Michelle Mason goes missing, November, Tanya Carmichael goes missing, and then in December, there's an unidentified victim who's unidentified at this point, reports an attempted rape by him, but that just kind of ends up going nowhere. Either she doesn't follow up with police or... 
as we see from the documentaries, very problematic where they deem her as an unreliable victim and sort of write her off and don't file the case. 2009 really amps up. And so this is when he ends up getting caught. But early 2009, I don't have a date. But this is when a woman by the name of Gladys Webb is attacked by Soul. And she goes into the police department to report it. And this is really disturbing piece to watch. Yeah. Where she is just beaten and bleeding and walks into the police station and they tell her, you're bleeding on our floor. Get yeah. out of here. She has like a an, an really deep laceration Ugh. on the, the um, pad of her thumb. And after they turn her away, six women were killed within that year. So January, Kim Smith goes missing. April, Nancy Cobb goes missing. Spring of that year sometime, Amy Hunter goes missing. June, both Janice Webb and Talasia Forston go missing. September, Diana Turner goes missing. In late September, the 22nd, is when uh, LaTundra Billups, also known as Lala, she's the one um, that escapes from him, where just this horrific story that she has to tell on the stand where after he's done raping her and beating her, she gets up and says that she has to use the restroom and she's walking to the restroom and she doesn't know if he's behind her or not or what's going on. And on her way, looks over at this open door and sees a headless body in the other room. And she said, I just had to, pull it together and use the bathroom and I did and I opened the door and he's right there and he says oh you're gonna go tell you're gonna go tell aren't you and she just switches on the charm and she's like what do you mean you know you're a little rougher than I like but it's it's fine I'm not gonna tell anyone that's anything. what saved her life absolutely saved, saved her saved life. life she goes arm in arm with him down the front of the steps and she said as soon as she was out that door she just booked she's like I just got high and I knew no one was going to believe me. Um, but she does end up going to the police, which is uh, what eventually brings a uh, arrest warrant to his house. So just once again, emphasizing something that we talked about at the beginning, all of these women were black women known to be drug users. Right. A lot of them actually had come from very good backgrounds but living in this environment where they were exposed to this level of economic trauma and opportunity for substance use, they were pulled, they, some of them, several of them share how they got pulled into, and they're very honest about how they got pulled into substance use. Mm-hmm. And there, let me tell you folks, there's no judgment coming from here because everybody deserves a chance to heal and recovery. Crack is an unbelievably addictive. I mean, it's, it's one of the ones they talk about that and heroin of just right. immediate, immediate addiction. But just the idea that these women were considered throwaway. Yeah. And in fact, in one of the documentaries, the liquor store owner, now the liquor store owner had, he witnessed the fall of the neighborhood over a couple of decades and his brother was killed in front of him point blank by shot in the chest, shot in the chest three times by a trio of young men who came in that were high on crack and came in to rob them. So now I understand that this guy has 
a particular view. He closed his store there and opened a store in a different neighborhood. But in one of the interviews, I was really gobsmacked when he says, I wish there were, a, did he say a hundred or a thousand? A thousand he said, I wish there, souls. I wish there were a thousand Anthony souls. Why in the interviewer, you can hear the incredulity in the, um, in the interviewer's voice, like, why, what do you, what do you mean? He goes, because he's cleaning it up, cleaning, cleaning up. up what cleaning up the garbage. What's the garbage, all of those crack users. Yeah. So here is this person that like came from a particular position. I want to make room for his pain, but I think that's a particularly horrific way to describe any human beings. And especially, 11 that he was convicted of, but we now know that there were likely many more victims and for them to be considered garbage is just, that's part of the problem. That's part of the problem. Why this crime took so long to get solved is if you've got the police that are understaffed and undertrained, right? You know, they didn't even have a missing persons unit. This is Cleveland. Freaking believable. And it's only, it's less than 20 years ago. Exactly. (laughs) And it's not like 1945, you know, it's just half a a decade ago. So, uh, so the, the story I just told with Lala Billups, that was on September 22nd of 2009, that same morning prior to that happening, the police or probation department had been by his house to do his sex offender check-in and didn't go in the house. Again, one of those stories of, you know, not going in the house. I don't know how they didn't smell. I mean, people have been complaining since 2007 of a dead body smell. Well, that's a whole different part of the story. Like that. Well, they have been, like you say, they have been uh, complaining this whole time and everybody else was getting blamed for it. Like there was literally his house is next to a sausage factory. Yeah. But a sausage, sausage, raw meat or cooking meat does not smell like a cadaver, a a dead body. You ask any EMT, any law enforcement officer, any ER nurse, that is a distinctive, distinctive smell. But uh, yeah, but but if there's a sausage factory right there, I'd go, eh. What's well, going on there? <laughs> okay, so the sausage factory, but they go in, they get health inspections twice. They spend $200,000 on redoing their, waste their HVAC and waste system, oh. and they still a smell. And then, like, even it's so strong, it's across the street. That's another thing that the the liquor store owner said is that people would come in and accuse him, you know, oh, it's you Arabs, you smell bad. And and then he, but he did say that after, after the crime was solved, they, people came in and apologized to him, oh, which really? I thought was very interesting. Oh but I mean, come on, how, how does a cop, how does anybody get to the front door? There were, by that time, there were four bodies in the house plus multiple body parts. I mean, some of them were mummified. Oh yeah. They have been there so long. Right, right, right. And in all this different weather, like how can you not know? Right, because af- after her incident, I mean at least Jeffrey was putting him in freezer bags and freezing them. Oh my god, I'm going to hit hit by lightning. <laughs> Jesus. Um so that incident happens with Lala and then a month later, exactly a month later is when we have the video of Sean Morris, a female Sean, and she is being attacked by him and decides he he tells her he's going to kill her and starts closing the windows of the room she's in. And she decides to just hurl herself out a window. So she falls out of the second story window in the little space between his home and the sausage factory. And there's surveillance footage from the sausage factory of her falling out naked. Anthony walking around out there coming to get her naked. naked. And 
there's a passerby that's interviewed in the Vice documentary that's like, what is happening? And Anthony's like, oh, this is my woman. We were this is my sex. woman. We're just having sex. She fell out the window. Um, and so the guy calls 911. But Anthony goes to the hospital with her in the ambulance. Hey, you know, just a side note. That actually is a paraphilia. Did you know that defenestration what? is a paraphilia? No. Defenestration is sort of a French derivative of throw, getting sexual... Getting sexual thrill from throwing somebody out the window. Oh my god! Okay, so but back to everything. So they call an ambulance. So she gets taken by ambulance and wakes up, and the nurse is like, and she's like, "I need to call my husband." And the nurse is like, "Oh, your husband rode over with you in the ambulance." Oh, that's so creepy. And then, but she goes. She turns to the nurse, and says, "That wasn't my husband. That was not my husband." Um, so by this time, the cops go to his house with a search warrant for Lala's incident. And then this incident happens. He's not there, but they do their search warrant and they find essentially 11 bodies. Three were buried in the backyard, but in the walls of the home in all different crawl spaces, like under the stairs. Um, one, you know, there was one young woman that the rest of her body was missing, but her skull was found just in, sitting in a plastic bucket. Right. Well, just, and that was probably the headless one. That oh, Lala right. Saw. Um, but none of them could be identified because of their stages of decomp and DNA eventually had to identify all of them. But, you know, it's just crazy. I remember when I used to do this as a slide show for my students and it's just like, this happens, and then this woman falls out of his window, and then this woman runs to the police bleeding, and then, oh, he goes for his check-in, his annual sex offender check-in at the police department, and then the cops show up at his house and do their check. And the liquor and store guy is saying that at this point in the whole timeline, Anthony stinks to high heaven. He's because he's he's living Shit. living among those dead bodies. He now just reeks of it, so he's walking into the the parole office. And the sex offender office, like, they didn't notice this. Do you, I mean, you worked in the jail. Do you know, remember those horrific smelling feet that people would have that they uh, smells like barf? I, I don't even want to go there. I mean, we're about to right? have dinner, so let's, I mean, but yeah, I mean, working, let me tell we're you, having folks, turkey meatloaf. Tonight, <laughs> we're having right? turkey meatloaf. But, oh my God, yeah, working in a jail, you would walk through four different microclimates of smells. We had this one particular person that no one would want to arrest in my city. Because it smelled like barf when he took his shoes off. And the jailers were like, I'm going to kick your ass if you arrest this person Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So he gets eventually arrested. Um, He uh, – there's some interview of interrogation footage in – one of the documentaries. I think it's really interesting. He never admits to the offenses. He says he's having dreams about the murders. Yeah. Um, and says, you know, he wants to help identify these people, but he he never gives any information. Well, I have to Nothing also helpful. say in that clip, I encourage everybody to watch these documentaries because they are very well done. But I was not impressed with the the uh, interrogation skills with those of those guys. No, I mean, it's a clip. I'm going to say it's a clip. Okay. Um, And I think they are talking to him in a way that they think would build rapport with him. And that he would probably feel more comfortable. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm not a black man in Cleveland, so I don't know what would be... Well, it was two black officers. Right, Right. So maybe... Yeah, I don't know. It just felt like... 
uh, very, I don't know. It just, yeah, but you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It was only like a, you know, a 30, 35 second clip. Are are you talking about kind of the nonchalantness? Yeah. He's eating the chips and he's like, that's to break them down for like, just rapport. Like we're casual. This is, you know, yeah, it was real casual. Just smoke here and let's just talk like guys. And, um, I, I'm sure it, it's different at other points, but I don't, I don't think, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that he wouldn't give them anything. Yeah. Uh, okay. Going back to my notes, just, I want to note that there is a, um, a mental health expert that testifies Dr. George Woods at the trial. He does a 57 page report that he made after interviewing soul in 2010. Um, he talks a little bit more about his childhood, witnessing relatives having sex with each other, um, says he remembers being abused by his mom, but he only says like a handful of times. Again, he's just minimizing it, um, but talks about some of the beatings with the electrical cord and that he would often be beaten because the basement wasn't clean enough, you know, some things like that. So, I mean, it opens up about a couple of things. Um he ends up getting diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, PTSD, some cognitive disorder. It's not, I don't have that report. This is, so this is just a summary as well as irritability and dissociation. I'm a, I have, uh, you know, here, I'm not directly doing the report. That just seems like a real all over Hodge the place. Podge. Yeah. That's, that is Hodge not really. <laughs> Because he's not even saying anything about Axis 2, which would be the person, I mean, which would have been even then was the personality disorders. Yeah. Why are you not touching on that? I don't know. I Where is he getting the OCD from? That he Well, would... let me tell you, his OCD certainly wasn't about cleaning that house because that <laughs> no. house is like just nasty. That he would obsessively count oh, ut- right. uh, utensils in prison, other inmates, um, food, things of that nature, I guess, while in prison. But yeah, you're okay. right. <laughs> He wasn't obsessive in the cleaning or uh, um, washing of hands or anything like that. Or even following through with disposal. I mean, that's part of that. I know we're, we're getting there eventually. But the idea of the haphazard nature of the bodies doing nothing to... Right hide you know at first there was the attempt to bury them outside right and then it was just like Mm, it's too much work work and it's just shoving even ed guy yeah i I mean i think it was probably the drugs because like ed guy was so psychopathic that he was transforming the body parts and the bodies into other things he was making the skulls into bowls and making you know, I think he made a belt out of nipples, which is horrible. And I apologize for even saying that folks. I'm sorry. But the idea that it's just this filth and also these women that are going in, it's like, I know you're a, a, I know you have a horrific substance abuse problem, but you're going in and having sex. I mean, he also starts punching them immediately, but that smell, like you could smell it from the street. Like, but what's waiting at the top of the stairs? Drugs. Yep. And alcohol. And some and two of these survivors have amazing stories about and they are open about how what the level of their addiction. Right. Where the there was oh. a one woman, her entire family tried to stage an intervention and her her daughter, her nine year old daughter, is crying and screaming, Mommy, please don't laying in the middle of laying the street. in the middle of the street and she's like, Nope. It's like she goes, I chose crack over my daughter. Oh, it's so heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, but it's also amazing. 
to see that people can come back from that. It's that is affirming. That's life affirming. Yeah. I don't think it's her. I think it's the other one that she got her master's in social work Yeah, and she's doing work, good work now. Um, so he was convicted and got the death penalty. Um, of 11. Convicted of, a, of the 11 bodies found in his uh, home. But the, and then there were 85 additional counts of uh, disturbing a corpse. I mean, it wasn't just oh, yeah. the murders, um, the sexual assaults, all, all of those things. And really the only thing that connected him, the only witness was the one woman that saw the dead body in the other room. I mean, that's why it was so important for her to recount that Horrific story on the stand. I don't know how all these bodies got here. I don't know. I just bought the place like this. I don't know. Yeah. So this is a rough <laughs> case. I mean, it it's just, it's awful for so many reasons. But, but it's also perfect for the purpose you use it for when you're teaching because it is, it shows a very particular profile, a very particular diagnosis even though I think that we could probably spend another two hours talking about what his actual diagnosis is. And we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. But the other thing that, that I just want to highlight again, and I, I, I apologize if I sound like I'm just beating this horse, but you know, the idea that this would not have happened in a white neighborhood, well, sure. it would not have gone unseen. It right. wouldn't have right? in almost any other neighborhood, but these people were just considered, you know, they're drug addicts. They're not worth the effort. And as a result, you know, 11 people we know are dead mm-hmm. and possibly about three or four times more. I would think right. I would really like to know. I, I bet they are continuing these investigations now is that period where he was overseas. Oh gosh. I know, you know, checking out to see if there were strangulation deaths while he was deployed in right. the military. Right. Yeah. In 2014, the federal department of justice issued a very scathing report on Cleveland PD and from everything from, um, you know, police brutality and corruption on up to including things like there were only 13 detectives in their sex crimes unit. They didn't even have a missing persons unit. Right. There were over 4,300 rape kits that were backlogged um, just for an agency that size. Really ridiculous stuff. Yeah. And I, I don't know what came of that. If they got some federal oversight that had yeah, I think to come I think federal oversight sure. stepped in. And I, think, I think there's improvement, and there's also there has been some economic improvement, which is good. Right. But right. yeah, that's a this is a particularly brutal example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, you're right. A good case to sort of highlight how risk assessment's done and why it's so important to do it comprehensively. Well, and we think about, and as much as we're dinging this original assessment, I want to emphasize that while they, that interviewer could probably have gotten a good bit more information, there was a bunch of information. There was no way they were going to get, you know, they didn't have access to it. He certainly wasn't going to provide it, but we look at the background and he was exposed to violence. He was exposed to sexualization at an early age allowed to, I mean, it just what, what's weird is how I have a feeling that people are specifically not talking right. in the family because then, well, if we talk about it, we're going to have to incriminate a lot of people uh-huh. that were engaging in these behaviors uh-huh. because 
any other, like, let's think about um, Abducted in Plain Sight, that documentary. You, we're getting details of everything. Yeah. So the idea that this particular case has been in the public eye for so many years, and yet we still get this very limited amount of information, I think, is telling. Yeah, yeah. I, I think she would have been able to get, or whoever would have been able to get more information with asking those questions specifically if there was a dynamic assessment in there. You know, things... It, it's not just, have you been in a relationship for two years, but what was it like? Oh, there was domestic violence. Okay. That's it. That's not really that stable. <laughs> you know, um, what's your social network like? Your social network says a lot about what your behavior is going to be like in the future. What's been your impulsivity in the past, um, other areas of stability like employment, you know, there's deeper dives that you do with dynamic factors. Again, that, can change over time. They can get better. They can get worse, but it just would have given so much more information or right. just more prompting questions to start yeah. getting that, that stuff out. So. so quick, just off the top of your head, what would you say diagnostically? Cause I think we both agree that like, we don't, we're not getting a, 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 a major right. agreement on that particular diagnosis. Right. Well, I mean, antisocial personality disorder. Clearly. Um, his severe alcoholism. Subs- and, and, and substance abuse. Substance abuse. Poly substance abuse, possibly. Um, uh, you know, I, he went into the Marine Corps. He held jobs. I think his cognitive abilities are probably, you know, there's no limitations there. Not, as far not, as not intellectual, cognitive. No, I and I would agree. I wouldn't think I think you could completely rule that out un, until it gets to the point where maybe he is affected by the amount of drugs he's right. using. If right. he's, I mean, he could have. He could have had some um, substance abuse psychosis going on, um, but including that dissociation. I think that dissociation was very interesting. Yeah, I would love to know more about that. That would be there because there is sort of a you have. to... To even beyond, you know, we hear horrific stories about meth addicts who just uh, completely ignore their their infant children. Sure, you know, sure. But that's so rare and so specific. And for him to walk around, you know, all joking aside about the the grossness of those bodies, you know, for him to be able to like they show pictures of his, you know, he made meals. Mm-hmm. You know, he was eating and and he would clean himself up enough to at least, I guess he still smelled, but he he would clean himself up to go out on the street. But the idea that you dissociate from this really horrific reality that you're walking in and out of every single day. Well, I wonder if that's what the doctor ended up sort of forming from, oh, the dreams I have about these murders. Yeah, but that's a little bit of a cop out. I mean, I'm not. I think that's a bit of an excuse. I wonder if there is there could have been an underlying mood disorder. Well, and sexual sadism. Clearly, if you're punching them in the face, you know, it might be to incapacitate them, but I think it's to inflict pain and violence. Yes, and he had a remember strangulation. He also uh, was on a dating site. He was on Alt.com, which is a fetish site, and he was looking. He was he was putting um, an ad out for him as a dom looking for a a sub. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, can you imagine? Like, oh, here's like this profile I'm meeting, and you walk into this, you know, stinky den of horrors. That would have been awful. You like picked out your Beth leather harness and you show up. <laughs> and for you this show up to that. Batch. I shave my legs. For hey, <laughs> I wore my best ball gag for this. <laughs> All right, let's end it there. I'm done with him. Yeah. All right. Um, 
anything we need to talk about that's coming up? Okay, what we have coming up is we are going to be meeting with Carrie Martin from White Wine True Crime, who also has the other podcast that I need to bone up on, which is really scary. Pretty scary. Pretty scary? Pretty scary. It's fun. Both of them are fun, so give them a listen, and we'll let you guys know um, which one and when we'll be on and all of that. True Crime Podcast Festival. Coming up. July, Chicago. Get your tickets. we got a project coming up with... um, Nick and Jessa, Jessa from, from Getting Off podcast, and that will will give you more information on that. Yeah, next we want to be able to put that out before uh, the festival. So, kind of leading up to that, we, we're going to do a crossover with yeah. them. And we got new stickers. We got we got fancy stickers specifically for the True Crime Podcast Festival, yes. which is if you're nice to us, folks, we'll send you a sticker. I yeah. hope we'll see you in Chicago. I know. I know. Anyway, that's all for us this time. We will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye-bye.